Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you have given your people a place to come and to enjoy the intimacy that we have with you. We are so grateful that we can lift our voices up and sing, that you have given us voices to do so, to praise, to worship, to get tuned up, as it were, for heaven, to anticipate your soon return. It's so exciting, Lord, to be with your people. And there is such a healing that takes place when we open and expose ourselves to your truth in the midst of your people. Oh, the health that occurs spiritually in fellowship, musing over the scriptures. And we pray, Father, that we would now be equipped for every good work that you would have for us to accomplish. We pray, Father, for hearts that are downtrodden, discouraged, looking for answers. And we pray, Father, that you would give them. We pray, Father, for those seeking direction, needing to be channeled and challenged in particular areas, wondering where you want them to go and how you want them to do what they seem to feel is your will in their hearts. We pray, Father, that all of that, as our good shepherd, you would lead us into. We pray, Lord, that tonight would be a further step as we look at the principles of your word. Give us not only glad hearts, but, Father, I pray that you'd give us studious hearts and minds to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I think there are a lot of Spock Christians. You remember Star Trek? Some of you watch Star Trek still? Now, keep in mind, I watch Star Trek simply for the theological and soteriological purposes only. It really... But you notice that Spock is very logical, always. Not being human, being Vulcan that he is. He will often approach situations completely logical, and of course there's always this constant rift between the good doctor and Spock himself. The doctor who's filled with passion and emotion and Spock who's always logical. And he will always approach a situation if he can't figure it out. He, he, it just baffles him whenever there's human emotion. Captain, that's not logical. We want life to be completely logical. We want it to be completely fair. A child, when a child sees something wrong, especially when the child has been wronged, one of his favorite outcries is, that's not fair. And from an early age, we think life ought to be fair. And adults look at life, too. And we see circumstances like wars, famines, natural catastrophes, human-born catastrophes, and we look at them and we go, that is not fair. Why should they suffer like that? Or why should I suffer like that? And for some reason we think, even as Christians, as Spock Christians, that life ought to be always packaged and neat and logical and fair. Premise, if I do good, good should always occur. If I do evil, evil should always occur. There should somehow always be a direct relationship and correspondence of 
um, action and reaction or result. There's only one problem with that line of thinking. It doesn't work in real life. We all have too many experiences where life is not fair. David was pursued by Saul. And when David was even at Ziglag, running from Saul and being persecuted by the king and his cohort in Ziglag, he said, through no fault of my own, I am experiencing this hardship. It's not fair. So we think if we do good, good should come. If a person does evil, he ought to be immediately punished. We know that doesn't happen. But we also know that we can do evil and get away with it and experience no apparent consequence. For some reason, that doesn't seem to bother us as much. It bothers us if we do good and we're not rewarded or seen or life isn't fair because we think we should get something good from it. Or if we do good and evil results or pain and suffering results. We don't like that. But if we do wrong and let's say we get blessed instead, why is it that we don't get bugged at that? Case in point, you're traveling down the freeway. You're going 80 miles an hour. A police stops you. A police looks at you and says, you're going 80 miles an hour in a 55, but have a nice day. Now, do you sigh and go, oh, thank you, Jesus? Or do you go, excuse me, officer, that's not fair. Would you please write me a ticket? I demand fairness and equity. I, I couldn't sleep if you didn't deal me a fair blow in this matter. I demand that equity be executed. He'd say, what are you, a nut? <laughs> but we always have a problem when we do good. And like David, we are pursued through no fault of our own. Now, all that to lay the foundation for the story that is about to come in this chapter. Jesus is presented with two cases of human suffering. And it seems that they're asking or requiring Jesus to give an account for them. Two catastrophes that happen. And it's very interesting in light of this to see how Jesus deals uh, with the problem at hand. There were present, verse 1, at that season, some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all of the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The Jews, many of them, believed in a formula kind of a faith, the Spock ideology. If you do evil, then evil will result. Hence, in these two scenarios of suffering, they must have been evil for this to occur. Now, this was the problem with Job's friends, you remember. Job, a very godly man. 
God even showed him off to the sons of God, including Satan, when they came to appear before him. Have you considered my servant Job upright? He loves me. He hates evil. Job experienced hardship, the loss of his family, and a ravaging disease. His three friends tried to explain it basically this way, with a few twists and different nuances. They said, Job, it's because you are a wicked man, and you have been executing evil secretly in your life. Though outwardly you may think you are righteous, you have deceived yourself, you've been following a pattern of wickedness. Hence, God has judged you, because God judges only those who are wicked. And only wicked things happen to wicked people. And they went back and forth in three series of speeches with different explanations, but they were wrong. And finally, Job just said, you're a bunch of miserable counselors, miserable comforters. I come to you for comfort. And he said, basically, you were great while you kept your mouth shut. It's when you opened it that there was a problem and tried to give me the counsel that was an ungodly kind of a counsel that I am suffering because of unrighteousness. Be careful of formula faith. Formula faith is very rampant. The idea is, you know, you say this, you do this, one, two, three, take those steps, and God's got to work. God's got to heal you. Simplistic formula faith in complex cases and situations only serves to create more guilt and more problems. Well, I've been healed, so if I've been healed, you ought to be healed. Well, maybe you have been healed. But maybe I ought not to be healed. Oh, but God always wants people to be healed. You can't find that if you read the Bible. Be careful of formula faith. And these people came to Jesus with that sort of an ideology and that sort of a background. And I would always refer you in cases like that to Acts chapter 12 that we covered on Sunday morning. Two apostles were put in prison. James was beheaded. Peter was released. That's not fair. Didn't they pray for James? Yeah, I'm sure they did. Why wouldn't he release? God said no. Isn't God God? Can he do what he wants? Isn't he sovereign? Oh, poor James. Oh, really? Interview James and ask him if it's a horrible thing. James, how do you feel? Isn't it horrible being up here in heaven? Oh, you must feel so miserable and like God has been unfair with you. Wouldn't you rather be on earth? Why would you want to hang out here in heaven in such bliss? James was beheaded. Peter was released. Both of them servants of God. Both of them godly men. God was finished with one testimony, James. God was not finished with another testimony, Peter's. We find scenarios like that throughout the scripture. Okay, there seems in this uh, section that we just read, the first few verses, to be two disasters. The first one is with the Galileans whom uh, Pilate had mingled, whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. There is not much information in history regarding this, but this is what we think it is. There was a time when Pilate decided to improve the water system in Jerusalem, which was much needed. 
Uh, in Israel, they depend upon natural rainfall or waters they collect in cisterns over a period of time or natural springs. In Israel, in Jerusalem was a temple. The temple had sacrifices. The sacrifices had a profuse amount of blood. That blood required a lot of water to wash the blood away and to go through the ritual cleansing of the priest. Hence, more water was needed. And so what happened, and besides that, they needed more drinking water in Jerusalem because the population was growing. Pilate decided to build an ingenious aqueduct from an area between Hebron and Bethlehem all the way to Jerusalem. And if you go to Israel today, we'll show it to you. Miles of a stone conduit that runs through the ground carrying water from an upper level down to Jerusalem. From the area of Solomon's pools, these huge reservoirs of water, to Jerusalem. Now, it was a needed improvement. The problem is that he used temple money rather than Roman money to do it. Still, he did it for the Jews, and it was a justifiable expenditure. But the Jews were so angry that a non-Jew Roman government official dared to tap into the treasury monies of the temple and make this aqueduct, that they had a mob gathered together outside of the praetorium of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem and protested. As the mob was gathering in fervor, Pilate commanded his soldiers to mingle amongst the crowd and to not carry their swords but to carry clubs. And uh, if they got too loud, to club them. In fact, he commanded them to, you know, disperse the crowd by beating a few. Well, the soldiers were a little slap-happy, uh, trigger-happy, so to speak, we might say today, and they killed many of these people, including a good portion of the Galileans. Galileans were always known as people who revolted against anything. There always seemed, whenever there was a problem, whenever there was an uprising, there were Galileans who either started it or who were involved in it. And it is thought that perhaps it's this, that uh, this meeting in the Temple Mount where the sacrifices were uh, that they're referring to. The Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifice. Then there's the mention of uh, the 18 in verse 4 and the Tower of Siloam that fell and killed them. Now there are some texts, some Bibles, who in the margin uh, where it says... When Jesus said, do you think that these were worse sinners than all the men who dwelt in Jerusalem? There are some versions who in the margin will say worse debtors. And it is thought that these were guys who owed a large sum of money and went to work for Herod, building his aqueduct system to pay off their debt. And while they were doing it, this tower of Siloam fell and killed them as they were nearing Jerusalem. Now, Jesus' answer is very telling. They ask him about human suffering. Are these worse sinners? And Jesus really kind of gets around the whole issue. He doesn't deal with theodicy completely. That is the, the reconciling of righteous God and suffering within a world of sinful men. Holy, loving God and a world that suffers. He just says, do you think they're worse sinners? No. And I tell you, unless you repent you will likewise perish. And he mentions that twice. A couple of things here. Number one, trouble is not always the direct result of evil. Jesus said, God makes the sun 
and the rain to fall on the just and upon the unjust alike. Now there is a purpose that God has for the believer. God does discriminate and God, I believe, prescribes like a doctor who knows his medicine will prescribe to his patient just the right medicine. Though it might hurt for a while, he will get better. God will prescribe certain things to certain people, but trouble, trials, persecution, pain, suffering, sickness is not the direct result of evil. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Paul was close to God. Paul was a man of faith. Paul could lay hands on people and they would get better. And yet Paul was sick. He called it an infirmity of his flesh. He prayed three times for the thorn to be removed. And God said, my grace is enough for you. Job suffered. Paul suffered. And you and I both know godly people who have suffered. And we've both known ungodly people who seem not to suffer that much, but prosper. So trouble is not always the direct result of evil or sin. Number two, Christians are not inoculated from evil. Just because you're a Christian, don't suppose, well, this shouldn't happen to a Christian. I'm covered. I'm not under the curse. You know what that means? You're not under the curse of the Mosaic law. That's what it means. You are under the curse of creation and you will be until God redeems it. There's no getting around the curse of redemption. The curse you're redeemed from that Paul spoke about in Galatians was the curse of the law and all of its ordinances that held you guilty before God. That's erased. That's done away with. Jesus said in the world you will have tribulation. Have you found that to be true? Anybody have tribulation here in the world? Oh, I think we could all say we have. Jesus gets to a deeper issue, and that is the need of the world to repent. An interesting answer. What about that tower that fell on those 18? What about the blood that was mixed? No, they weren't worse sinners, but you need to repent. Now, I think what Jesus is saying here is this. He is taking their thinking and following it to a logical conclusion saying, well, let's suppose that God does judge sin in this manner. If that's the case, folks, then you best repent because you're all sinners as well as they are. And if a tower of Siloam fell upon them and killed them and Pilate's killing of them, mingling the blood with the sacrifices, was because they were sinners, if that's how God deals with sin, then you better repent because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here we see the universal need for a person to deal with the real issue, and that is the sin issue. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So, you know, and their question, their question is, how come they died? That's not fair. How come they died? Jesus sort of turns it around. How come you're still alive? That ought to be a better question. I mean, if they were wicked and God judged them, how'd you make it through? kind of twisted around. Unless you repent, and speaking here of the spiritual issue, you will, you will likewise perish. Now, I think there's something else innate in what Jesus is saying. He is speaking to a nation as a whole. He is looking down the pike to a time when they would reject the Messiah so fully and so completely that God would judge the nation for its national sin. 
They rejected the testimony of John the Baptist. They rejected the testimony of the prophets. The son himself came upon the scene. They rejected his testimony. They rejected his miracles. They rejected his love. And there came a time when God allowed the Romans to become the tool that would shut down the sacrifices and the temple once and for all. Judge the nation in 70 AD. I think that is implied in the text as well. Now he spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Now, if you read this carefully, you may have noticed that Jesus speaks of a fig tree But he speaks to the owner or the keeper of the vineyard. He's saying, wait a minute. What's a fig tree doing growing in a vineyard? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't want to belabor the issue, but it points out to the problem that Israel has always had. Israel is filled with rocks. And the the soil in Israel sometimes looks fertile, but it only goes down to about 18 inches. There's a shelf of solid bedrock often covered up by a shallow layer of dirt. And so there are not that many places for these trees to grow. And the idea was that vineyards where the rocks have been tilled over sometimes hundreds of years are the best places for trees to grow. And wherever trees would grow, especially fig trees, because they were high on the commodity list of the food chain for Israel, you let them grow anywhere. And oftentimes you'd plant them or let them grow in the vineyards. All right, enough of that. The fig tree is growing. It doesn't bear fruit. Now, it takes about three years, it is said, for fig trees to become mature enough to enjoy their fruit, enjoy their food. Uh, In Israel, there's two types of figs. One is called the ficus caracus, and that's the fig tree we're talking about here. Broad leaves. It bears fruit after three years. Another type of fig tree was called the ficus sycamorous which is the sycamore fig that doesn't bear edible fruit. It has huge leaves, broad branches, and it grows a lot taller. This was the fig tree that Zacchaeus climbed in Jericho to look at Jesus when he was coming in the parade because Zacchaeus was too short to stand in the crowd and see. He climbed the ficus sycamorus. But the fig tree that bears fruit, you know, after three years, you ought to see something. Now, I think it was a longer period of time. You say, wait a minute, it says three years. Yes, but in Leviticus 19, the Bible tells us that God says, when you go into the land and you plant fruit trees for food, the first three years, you don't touch it. You don't touch any of the fruit. The fourth year, you take and give everything to God. The fifth year, you can eat of yourself the fruit that grows. So it could be that four years had passed and then the owner's waiting to eat in year number one, which would be the fifth year, and the sixth year, and the seventh year. After three years where that thing should be giving the owner fruit, he didn't see any. Now that's being patient. Okay, three years is when it comes out, the fruit. Seven years, perhaps he was waiting for fruit, he found none. 
He said, I'm going to cut it down. It's worth it. It's just taking up soil. But the response is this. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Let me work with it a bit. There's still hope. Uh, let's not just be willing to judge it right off the bat. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. God was patient with the nation of Israel. Principally, that is what the parable is teaching. God gave Israel three years, which was basically the span of Jesus' ministry, to receive him and to bear fruit. But more and more, rather than receiving their Messiah, they rejected their Messiah. He came into his own, his own received him not. But, though they could have been cut off immediately, God was patient. God not only waited three years, God waited 40 more years until 70 AD came before the Romans came in and finally destroyed the city. God is the God of the second chance. So often we see a person not bearing fruit, we see a person in a backslidden state, and we say, let's nail them. Let's get them. Let's judge them. Let's cut them off. Well, there may be a time for that, but the Bible says you're to approach him in love as a brother, admonishing him, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. If the brother doesn't receive it, you're to take somebody else with you. And both of you go together and lovingly try to draw that person to a place of repentance. If after that second try, he does not receive the loving admonishment of the one and then the two, then Jesus said, put him out of the church. Put him out of the church. Treat him like a heathen and a tax collector. Let there be enacted church discipline that is a form of judgment that is meant to bring that person correctively back to the church via repentance. But you don't start off that way. You start off with gentleness and love and forgiveness. And God was very patient with the nation of Israel and sought to woo the nation of Israel back to himself. But they were not willing, and we get hints of that as we move on in the chapter. They rejected Jesus Christ. They put him on a cross. He rose from the dead, but God left his witness in Jerusalem and told his apostles, when you go out and witness to people, you begin in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. But let's start in Jerusalem. And Paul started with the Jew first and then also the Greek. That was always the pattern. Give them a chance. But there was a time when they sealed their fate and their house was left to them desolate, as we'll see if we ever make it tonight to the end of this chapter. If it bears fruit well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. Now, let me just give you a little hint of what Jesus refers to many times in this chapter and chapters to come. And that is the 70 A.D. event. He looks down the pike, remember, and he sees the judgment to the Romans. In 66 A.D., the Jews revolted against Rome. They were tired of the oppression. Two rulers, two generals in charge of three garrisons in the Roman army, their names Vespasian and his son Titus, came and were called to quell the riot that the Jews had made in Jerusalem. 
Vespasian came and Titus came. Titus was recalled back to Rome to become the Caesar, the, the emperor. He did, leaving his son Titus in charge. The Jews continued to revolt. The Romans camped around Jerusalem. And in 70 AD came the fatal blow. The Jews had been hemmed in Jerusalem. Their food supplies had run out. Their water supplies had been stopped up. They were starving to death. Some of them feeding on human flesh to stay alive. Their animals were already eaten. As the riot grew stronger in Jerusalem, Titus, the son of Vespasian, ordered the soldiers to move into Jerusalem to take over the temple, to take captive the people, kill those who were necessary in the riot, but to spare the temple. Spare it. During the attack, a drunken Roman soldier threw in a torch that caught some of the articles of clothing, some of the grains, and that huge, especially that huge uh, veil of the temple between the holy place and holy of holies caught it on fire. Josephus, in his writing, says the blaze was so intense, the heat was so hot, that the gold that formed the rim around the temple proper melted through all of the stones of the temple. And the soldiers in the next several days, because of their greed, took each stone on the temple and overturned it. Not one stone was left upon another. They were all taken and dissembled to get to the gold that was in the cracks. Fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus shares later as he looks at the house, the temple. and says, not one stone shall be left upon another. All shall be thrown down. It was an absolute destruction. It was an absolute dismantling of the temple. So much so that if you go to Israel today, even to the temple conference, you'll have 20 different ideas of where the temple once stood. Nobody knows for sure. A complete desolation. Then many of the Jews who fled went down to the Dead Sea, to the area of Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, of the Essene community, and many of them made their way to the fortress of Masada. As they held out on Masada in 73 AD, the 10th legion of the Roman army surrounded Masada, did the same thing they did to Jerusalem, cut off its food, cut off its water. And the Jews, many of them down below, were forced to become slaves to build this huge battering ram and a ramp that this battering ram could move forward onto Masada to overtake it. Let, let me shorten it up. The Jews on top, 976, 967, 900 and some people were up there. Knowing that the Romans were about to come in 73 AD and take them captive, knowing that their wives would be raped by the Roman soldiers, their children would be slaves, decided they would all commit mass suicide. And the night before the invasion was finally completed, Eleazar ben Yair, the leader of the Jewish rebel force on Masada, had the men kill their own families, lay their children side by side, slit their throats, kill their wives, lay the wife next to the child. And then they began killing each other until there were just a few left, and then they committed suicide. So that when the Romans would come in, they would find that this rebellion ended in futility, at least as far as the Romans were concerned. There was great suffering and there was great pain, and all of that was foreseen by Jesus, and he hints at it in the next several chapters as the nation has now rejected him. 
And now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. By the way, this is the last time you're going to read, Jesus is even in a synagogue. The door of Judaism is closing him, and Jesus is less and less in the public places of Judaism. They are rejecting him. He is rejecting them. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years and was bent over. Some translations say double bent, sort of an arthritic scoliosis where she was bent over a, 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 an arthritis of the spine and a scoliosis. And she couldn't move. She could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. You notice that every time Jesus heals people, they really are healed. They don't still walk around in the bent-over condition saying, I'm claiming my healing. I know it doesn't look like I'm healed, but I really am. Hey, God does good work, all right? I think it's a, a shame to, to claim healing when you're not and go around telling people, God healed me. I still got this cast on, but God healed Hey, people are going to think your God does shabby work. Every time Jesus healed people, they were really healed. And people marveled at it. It was bona fide. But the ruler of the synagogue, everybody, picture the scene. They're glorifying God. This woman is ecstatic. Disciples are going, wow, it's another one he did. This is awesome. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, which is interesting, he is such a coward. He won't even talk to Jesus directly. He preaches to the crowd. He's going to make a big sermon out of this. When he's really ticked at Jesus, why don't you just talk to Jesus directly? But he won't. He's going to talk to the crowd. I've been in churches where the pastor will preach to the empty seats. There ought to be more people here tonight. How come there's not more people? Hey, quit preaching to the empty seats. Preach to the filled ones. Preach to the people who came. Don't worry about the ones who haven't. But gee, this guy now speaks to the crowd in his anger and his indignation. There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath. How absurd. How absurd. Follow his line of thinking. What if you were to follow it, especially if you could challenge this guy with it? There's, there's six other days you could be healed. You want to be healed? Come on those six days. Oh, really? What if we started bringing our sick to your synagogue, Rabbi? Could you do it? Could you heal us? And if you could, why haven't you done it yet? See, it's cowardice. It's hypocrisy. This guy has never seen healing. He would know what to do with all the people that were infirmed if they demanded healing. Instead of rejoicing, he's resentful. The other people are rejoicing. This guy is so bound by tradition, he is more bound than the woman who is bound for 18 years. Bound by his background, his tradition, his presupposition in his thinking. Then the Lord answered him, hypocrite. I like Jesus straight, doesn't beat around the bush. And 
Does each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead, lead away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? The rabbis in the synagogue were especially angered by anyone who would mistreat an animal. It's documented. They insisted that you treat the animal that God has given you as a beast of burden kindly, and even on the Sabbath, you could unloose it from its stall, though it would be considered work, and walk it down the road to a watering place and give it refreshment. You could do that to your animal. Jesus is saying, you're absurd. You're a hypocrite. You will be concerned about one of your animals whom God has given you. But here's a person, and she's a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of faith, a Jewish woman. And she can be loosed, and you're angered that she's loosed. It's absurd. Now, I've seen married couples yell at each other be mean to each other, say the worst kinds of things to each other in an argument, and then they'll let the dog inside and go, oh, come here, little puppy. Oh, you're so cute. Oh, I love you. Treating a dog better than a human. I've seen something more absurd. I've seen automobiles with bumper stickers. I don't like bumper stickers mentality for the most part, but I see, sometimes I see cars with like every bumper sticker known to man. It's almost like a confusion of messages. But I saw one not long ago that, you know, said, save the whales. I'm all for saving anything that has life. Save the whales. Save the earth. Yet it was a pro-abortion message. How absurd. Human life is dispensable. 4,500 are butchered every day in this country. It's a blotch of shame to this nation. And it's even a greater blotch that more are insensitive to it. In New York City, the abortion rate, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence to live birth and abortion. The same are being aborted as are being born in that city. It's absurd. Human life is expendable, but oh, the animals. Jesus is showing the absurdity in this man's heart. When he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all of the glorious things that were done by him. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took, put in his garden. It grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, 
till all was leavened. Now Jesus on many occasions gave what is called kingdom parables. It is the king describing the growth of the kingdom. For a fuller account, I recommend to you Matthew chapter 13, where you have all of the kingdom parables put in a beautiful order, and there is a real symmetry and design to that order. First of all, he speaks here about the growth of the kingdom of God and compares it to a mustard seed and to leaven. Now, first of all, the mustard seed. The mustard seed Jesus is talking about is an unusual kind. We think of a little plant in an herb garden. The, uh, the word that is used is the cardal plant. And the cardal plant was a, is an Arabic, you'd like this, all of the people in New Mexico, we'd enjoy it. It's a spicy, hot mustard seed. And it grows an average of six to eight feet tall. It's not a little shrub in a garden of an herb garden. It's this huge tree that grows. Travelers to the Middle East have documented in ancient days where this used to grow very profusely around the arid areas that they have seen a mustard tree be taller than a horse and its rider on top of the horse, up to 15 feet tall. Now that's what Jesus is speaking about, no doubt, this cardal plant, this huge tree. And you would often find a flock of birds who especially like those spicy, tiny little black seeds of mustard that that tree would produce. And Jesus compares the kingdom of God to it. It became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now let me tell you how that parable has been interpreted for a long time in, in some circles. People say Jesus is predicting the outright success of the kingdom of God, that it's going to grow and encompass the globe and that people will shelter under its branches in its protection. And they'll go back to Pentecost. When the seed of the gospel was preached, you had 120 in an upper room, and then 3,000 get saved, and then 5,000, and pretty soon you have 20, 30,000 people in Jerusalem that go all around Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And see, they say the kingdom of God started as a small seed and grew into a large, large system, and people are still lodging in its branches. But the key to this parable is the birds. Birds in Scripture are generally seen in an analogous form as evil. And the very first parable Jesus gives in the list of what is called the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, he says, a sower went out to sow some seed. And by the way, he said, this is the key to all parables. If you can't understand this one, you won't understand the rest, he said. He said, a man went out to sow seed. Some fell by the wayside and the birds of the air snatched it. Jesus interpreted that as Satan stealing the word of God from the hearts of men. The wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. Then in the book of Revelation, there is Babylon in the end times. And the angel says, Babylon, the habitation of demons, the cage for every hateful and unclean bird. Many times birds are seen in an analogous prophetic way as evil. Let's follow that up with the next parable, the parable of the leaven. The kingdom of God is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. And they say, well, this is the same teaching. The kingdom of God is like a little piece of leaven stuck in dough and it rises and the leaven moves throughout the whole lump till you have this huge, beautiful 
loaf of bread. And that's like the kingdom of God that started small but grew and grew and pervaded through all of society and every culture. Well, it's true. The gospel has spread greatly. But leaven is always a symbol of evil. It's used 71 times in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's always seen as evil. God says when you have a feast, you always keep leaven away from the bread you use at my holy feasts. When Passover comes, seven days, go through your house, search for leaven, get rid of it. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of Herod. He also said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He also said, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees, which is hypocrisy. Paul the Apostle also used leaven as evil. He said, let us keep then the feast, not with the leaven of malice or evil. For a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Used there as speaking of evil. In Galatians, Paul uses leaven as false doctrine that would spread throughout the whole church. So in almost every time you read leaven, it's not good growth, it's evil growth. The rabbis in ancient rabbinic and Talmudic literature spoke about leaven as being wicked, and they used the word naughtiness and filthiness. So when Jesus, speaking to a Jewish audience, mentioned leaven, they didn't say, oh, how marvelous. It was, oh, how wicked, how evil. Jesus looks through history and sees this huge growth of what is called his church. But he also sees that evil things will lodge in its branches, that the church will become an umbrella for evil birds, and that leaven will pervade the church in its growth. So much so that in Mark, Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? We need to make a distinction then between Christianity and Christendom, do we not? Everybody who comes within a church is not a Christian, any more than anything that is in a, gar a garage is an automobile. If you park yourself in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. If you go to a Winchell's donut shop, you're not automatically a policeman. And if you park yourself in a church and have a Bible, you're not automatically a Christian. You may be under that great umbrella of Christendom, yet you may not necessarily be a Christian. Throughout history, the church has grown. But here's the point. Growth is not necessarily, in and of itself, good. Now, this church was, a few years ago, rated as the fastest growing church in America. When I found that out, I'll tell you what I said. I said, so what? What kind of growth is it? Oh, well, your church is so successful. Hey, you got to be careful of large numbers of people. You want the right kind of growth. Jesus didn't really seem to be moved by the crowds that came, the multitude. In fact, he would challenge them so that many of them would leave whose hearts weren't right. He didn't say, okay, Peter, James, John, now pass out those cards to them and, you know, let's schmooze them a little bit. Let's send them a free little thing in the mail. And <laughs> he sought to weed out that which was of, of an impure motive, impure motive. Throughout church history, evil has lodged under that umbrella. Back in 328 A.D., there was a decisive battle that was fought in northern Italy at the Milvian Bridge 
with Constantine and Licinius, Constantine won, he vowed that if he won, he would set Christianity, in his own words, quote, upon the throne of the Caesars, close quote. In other words, he would make it the established religion without persecution. Supposedly, he claimed to have a vision the night before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. He looked up in the sky, and in Latin, the words were inscribed something like, En Vinci, oh, I can't, I forget it. In this sign conquer. Insignio Vinci, something like that. In this sign conquer, and it was the sign of the cross and the P. In other words, I'm going to give you victory, conquer in my name. And so he won the battle and he made Christianity the official religion. You think, oh, that's good. No, it wasn't good. Because all of a sudden, all of the pagan temples that hired with Roman money, pagan priests, priestesses, prostitutes and the like, were shut down. And you say, well, that's good. Well, just hold on. All of these pagan priests, knowing that their jobs were at stake, had a sudden conversion and became Christian. And so they had church leaders who were once pagan people who brought in many of their pagan cultural and religious ceremonies into the church. And a neo-paganism evolved within the church from 328 AD. And Christianity became very popular, but very, very corrupt. As indulgences were sold, they went to the highest bidder. If you had money, you could knock thousands of years off purgatory. The papacy was greatly abused. Many had multiple wives in the papacy, homosexual relationships. And so this umbrella spread, but it wasn't a good growth. Then you move on through history and other groups emerged under the umbrella. Many people think Mormons are Christians. Jehovah Witnesses, well, they're Christians. Unitarians go by the name of Christian. Christian science, what a misnomer that is. It's neither Christian nor science. Over in Lebanon, there was the Christian militia, armed men in the name of God, killing other people. In Ireland, you have one sect fighting another sect, all in the name of their religion. It's the umbrella of Christendom, but it is not Christianity. And Jesus sees that and predicts the growth of the kingdom. Huge, yes, but birds of the air and leaven pervading his church. That's what I believe is the interpretation of the parable. And he went through the cities and the villages. Oh, by the way, have you heard of the World Council of Churches? What a farce. Don't be thrown by names. Investigate. Ask questions. Ask what they mean by Jesus. It's not just the word that is used. It's the meaning that is poured into the word that counts. When a Mormon says Christian and a Jehovah Witness says Christian and a Unitarian says Christian and an Evangelical says Christian, you have four entirely different meanings. But it's the same language. That's why it's important to get down to the meaning that that person uses for his language. The World Council of Churches is a very liberal organization that seeks to marry and blend all of the other religious faiths and Christianity together. They have said, and they go on record, quote, Christianity cannot claim to have the truth. 
Therefore, we admonish that Christian universities and colleges place on their board of regents Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus of Christian colleges. The World Council of Churches, they do not speak for holy God. Jesus sees all this and portrays it with the leaven and the birds lodging in the mustard tree. He's going now in verse 22 toward Jerusalem. That was his goal all along. His face was set toward Jerusalem. He's on a divine timetable. The cross is before him, and he's going there for the purpose of death. One said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Now, when they asked this question, they were asked this in a Jewish context. Many of the Jews were taught by the Pharisees that God only loved the Jews, and God created non-Jews to kindle the fires of hell. So they're thinking, is it just us, just us, the Jews, who are saved? Very nationalistic in their thinking. Strive, he said, to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. He will answer and say to you, I do not know you. From where are you from? And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. Hey, we were there at church. You taught in the streets. He will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where you are from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. What does it boil down to? Does it boil down to attendance? Does it boil down to affiliation, denomination? Does it boil down to what ceremonies you have kept? It boils down to relationship. Jesus isn't going to quiz you on a theology course. He's not going to say, okay, before you get into heaven, I have three questions for you. If you're going to answer these, fine. One has to do with eschatology. Are you pre-trip? Are you mid-trip? Are you post-trip? The second one has to do with soteriology and the implications thereof with Christology. He's going to say, do we know each other? Not going to say, well, were you Catholic? Were you Methodist? Or were you Calvary Chapel? <laughs> Those titles are irrelevant. It's do you personally know? And that's what the idea here is a personal relationship. If you're not a Christian tonight, let me explain something to you. You may have seen these Christians running around the landscape asking you questions like, do you have a personal relationship with God? And you think, what? Is that even possible? What do they mean a personal relationship with God? Jesus said to these people, I never knew you. And they were thrust out. You can have a relationship with the living God. Because Jesus Christ is a real person, God in human flesh, who died, rose from the dead, and ever lives now. And you can know God by coming through Jesus Christ. And you can relate to him. 
You can communicate with him freely in a love relationship. You can hear him speak to you. He said, why do these people have so much joy? They act like they know God. <laughs> they do. More than that, God knows them. That is the issue. That is the crux of life. That is the most important question you must face. Do you know God? Well, I know about God. It's not the issue. Do you know him? For years, when I lived in Huntington Beach, I could tell you all about my postman. I never met him. I could tell you how he looked, some of his quirks, what time he came, what kind of shorts he wore when he delivered mail, what color his truck was. But one day I met him. I engaged in a conversation with him, and we related with each other. There's a big difference. Have you let God in your house, as we were singing before the Bible study tonight, that this house would be a temple, my body a temple, a vessel for God? If you're still a little bit confused, take that step tonight by asking God to forgive your sins and giving your life over to Him through Jesus Christ that you might know Him and relate with Him. Because one day you will stand before God and you might say, no, wait a minute, I went to this church. I tithed. How horrible for God to say, I don't know you. Oh, but I went to Calvary Chapel, Lord. Don't know you. Well, I went to second service. God, maybe you went to first. We didn't see each other. I don't know what it is. No, I don't know you. I was there at all of them. I was there before you got there. Oh, I was there. Oh, I know what you mean now. You mean you just plopped your body there. But your heart really wasn't given over to me. Big difference. If you haven't made that step, today's the day. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus Christ told people the truth, told them like it was, didn't mince words, shot from the hit, answered questions with the most important answer rather than a peripheral answer. And when people ask these questions about being saved, you told them that the greatest issue is that they know you personally. And I pray tonight for anyone who has come, come out of curiosity, come to learn, come because they have a broken heart. Whatever reason, Lord, we're so glad they came. But we believe, Lord, that you want them to come further, not just to attend, but to come to know the God that we're speaking about in a personal way. Not to know facts about you, not to get degrees in theology necessarily, but to know you intimately, personally, and dynamically. And we pray, Father, for those who might be here tonight or listening live over the radio right now, throughout the city or state, that this would be a decisive moment for them and that you would draw them home. And in a moment of silence, as you are considering your life right now sitting in this congregation, if you would say, Skip, I'm not really sure if I know Jesus Christ personally. I'm not really sure that I can say, I know my sins are forgiven and I know that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But I'd like to know that. I'd like to know it for sure. And I'd like to know God personally. Well, to do that, you must receive Jesus Christ. The Bible says, as many as received him personally, he gave them the right to become his children. You can receive him now. And first of all, if you are here tonight, 
you've acknowledged this is your need and you desire to make Jesus your Savior, to relate to God in that personal way, I'd like you to raise your hand wherever you're sitting in this auditorium. 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 Wherever you're sitting in this auditorium.